Hey, this is Matt Blois. We forgot to mention it when we originally released this episode, but music on this episode comes from Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Normally on Big Biology, we talk to researchers who are pushing the envelope in biological sciences. We look for people who have big ideas that change the way we think about the whole world. But as science communicators, we're also interested in how that research makes its way from the lab into the mind to the general public. That's why we sometimes interview science writers. These folks do an amazing job with this very hard work of translating science for the general public. Today we're talking with David Quammen, a master of the craft. He's written books about zoonotic infections such as Ebola, HIV, and Nipah. And he once wrote an entire issue of National Geographic about Yellowstone National Park. We're going to break with our regular format this month. No short episode. We're just releasing the long one, our whole chat, with David Quammen. David is amazingly devoted to his work. He's traveled with scientists through the Congolese jungle and climbed on the rooftops in Bangladesh looking for bats with lethal infections. For his latest book, called The Tangled Tree, he spent a lot of time hanging out with scientists in their labs. His new book tells the story of a group of scientists who discovered that the tree of life is far more branchy than Darwin, Wallace, or most anyone else ever expected. Scientists told him that this is largely because genes can sometimes jump sideways from one species into another, an idea called horizontal gene transfer. Scientists used to think that DNA only moved vertically, from ancestors to descendants. The discovery that genes can move between species forces us to reevaluate how good trees are as metaphors for evolutionary relationships. The discovery of horizontal gene transfer certainly doesn't refute evolution by natural selection. That's still a fundamental part of biology. What it does do, though, is show that inheritance is far more complicated than we once thought. It also shows that life on Earth can be about species getting along rather than just struggling for existence. The book follows the lives and research paths of scientists like Carl Woese, who in the 1970s discovered an altogether new form of life called archaea. It also tells the story of Lynn Margulis, a scientist who proposed that nucleated cells form through the cooperation of bacteria and Woese's archaea. We talk with David about the history of these discoveries, how they affect our understanding of evolution and species as real things. We couldn't resist asking him about his process of writing books, too. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Before we go too deep into the ideas, do you mind sort of setting the table with a basic description of molecular phylogenetics and how it came to start <laughs> the key players and the, the sure, key contributions yeah. to the field? Yeah, well, I sometimes joke that when you, if you were going to pitch this book to an editor, one thing you wouldn't say is, well, it's going to be a 400-page book about the history of molecular phylogenetics. <laughs> That's not what you want to say, even right. though that, that is true. Uh, molecular phylogenetics, that tongue twister, of course, means the, um, the investigation of what creatures are related to which others, how closely, how distantly, uh, the shape of life over the long stretch of time on Earth, and how those questions can be approached using molecular information, meaning the sequence of units on long, complicated molecules such as DNA and RNA. 
And what that yields is a tree of life, an evolutionary tree of life, the tree of life being the canonical picture of life's history. It became an evolutionary picture with Charles Darwin uh, showing um, single origin of life, the tree rising upward, a couple of big limbs diverging, then branches diverging from the limbs, then more branches, smaller branches, twigs diverging, 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 yielding a crown of biological diversity as it exists on Earth today. So, so I, I, one of the really major points that comes out of your book is that this, this metaphor of a tree and all of this divergence um, is, is being eroded as an idea in the last 10 or 20 years. And I want to I want to really come back to that in, in just a minute, but I, I also want to start by just getting you to talk about Carl Woese, uh, who's right. you know one of your I'd say the main character in the book. Uh, yes. Really interesting guy, did really interesting science. Um, can you just give us a, a brief overview of Woese and and what yes. he did? Here, here is this man, Carl R. Woese, a microbiologist at the University of Illinois in Urbana, Illinois, in the 60s, 1970s, and forward from there. I refer to him sometimes as the most important biologist of the 20th century that you've never heard of. Mm. And, and if there was one theme line to the book, I suppose that would be it. I had never heard of him myself until 2013, and I had written three or four books about evolutionary biology by that point. Had never heard of this guy. And then I came across him in my various reading and discovered that he was at the center of a fascinating web of ideas, discoveries, methods, uh, researchers that had in the late 20th century into the early 21st radically revised the tree of life, the picture of, of life's history on earth. And he did it beginning with very, very primitive, laborious, dangerous methods of genome sequencing, working at his lab in the 1970s. And that yielded one great discovery that sort of launched a lot of other work by other people as well as himself. And that great discovery was the discovery of a new kingdom of life, a third kingdom of life on Earth, unsuspected until 1977. Um, that was added to the, the two kingdoms we thought we knew about, which were essentially bacteria on the one hand and everything else, complex creatures, animals, plants, fungi, on the other hand. And Woe's mm -hmm. discovered this third kingdom that came to be known as the Archaea, as in old archaic archaeology, because they were thought to be related to perhaps the oldest form of life on Earth. So, so he had quite a cool reception early on to this idea. So, um, you know, how did this idea come to be accepted and, and how did he convince his critics that in the end he was right? Right. He and a postdoctoral fellow of his, George Fox, published a paper in autumn of 1977 announcing this discovery of a third kingdom of life and describing their methods and the, the supporting data that they had for it. Uh, unfortunately, he was funded by NASA um, 
uh, through their exobiology program and also through the National Science Foundation. And those organizations wanted to issue a press release announcing this discovery. So a press release was issued and Woes appeared on the front page of the New York Times, November 3rd, 1977, picture of him with his feet up on his desk wearing Adidas tennis <laughs> shoes and, uh, and an article describing this new form of life in the New York Times. So suddenly he was famous, at least briefly, nationally famous to the general public. But the fact that this discovery essentially was announced by press release and by popular publication, rather than uh, simply letting it stand on the evidence of the journal paper, um, caused a lot of biologists to think that it was junk science, that it was bunk. Uh, I'm using the polite words. And, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly in the U.S., uh, the, his, his discovery was given the cold shoulder, was rejected for a number of years. Much, much more readily embraced by German microbiologists. Hmm. Was, was there something that led him to sort of take that route that it showed up in the New York Times first before it went through peer review? I mean, is this sort of just an accident that explains the history or how did that come to be? No, there was an, one of his close colleagues at Illinois, Woes died in 2012, so I never got to talk to him, never, mm. never interviewed him, but I interviewed all the people who worked with him. And one of them told me um, a very eminent microbiologist named Ralph Wolf told me the thing that happened was earlier, Carl Woese had, had made what he thought was another important discovery, a, a mechanism of, of uh, how uh, a description of the mechanism by which uh, DNA information is, is turned into um, physical structure, turned into the bodily parts, turned into proteins. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he thought this was a very important original discovery. And he announced it in a paper that he delivered at a scientific conference in Europe. And all the famous molecular biologists were there, uh, Francois Jacob and Francis Crick and a number of others. And Woes gave his presentation. He was unknown at that point, but he thought, this is really a big deal. This is my chance. He gave his presentation to these people right before lunch one day, and they all got up and walked off to have lunch. And there was no discussion, no interest, no questioning of him. They essentially just shrugged off off this thing. And so Woes said, I will never again let people ignore me like that. He was that kind of a fellow. He would, uh, he would hold a grudge. He would, he would take an injury and, uh, and sort of treasure it. And so yeah. years later, this announcement in 1977 by press release, I was told by his friend was related to that, that his, his vow never to let himself be ignored again. Huh. Do you want to spend a little bit of time on on the sort of trees that he produced and the and the direction of, of trees since then? Um, maybe what what was his contribution and, and how have those things as uh, things changed yes. as, as time have passed? Well, he had a huge effect on the uh, on, on this field, molecular phylogenetics. He's he was. Arguably, he was the founder, certainly he was one of the major founders of this field. The idea of using DNA uh, and RNA as, uh, as essentially uh, molecular archaeology, to a molecular fossil record to discern the history of life and the shape of the tree of life. And so Woese's first contribution to that was this 
tree of life that included this new kingdom, the archaea, so that it was a tree of life that had three major limbs branching from the trunk rather than two major limbs. Instead of just bacteria and everything else, and the everything else uh, group is known as the eukaryotes. We, all animals, plants, fungi, we're eukaryotes. We have uh, fancy cells with cell nuclei and other internal um, organs. Um, so instead of just the two limbs of life, Woes' first tree was a three-limbed um, tree of life. And then others came along and started using his methodology and going beyond that, using in particular this, uh, I'll call it a Rosetta Stone molecule that he had focused on, a molecule very deeply embedded in all forms of life because it's involved in translating genetic information into bodily structure. Um, it, has a, it has a fancy name. Should I say that? Yes. Sure. <laughs> this sure. molecule is uh, famously known as 16S ribosomal RNA. It's a structural RNA. If people have heard of RNA, they think, oh, that's a messenger molecule, right? That's, that's what carries the, the information of DNA into uh, the part of the cell, the ribosome that uses that information to create proteins. Um, but this particular RNA is a structural RNA, and it actually exists within the ribosome, this, this information-translating organ in the cell. Uh, and so every form of life on Earth has it or has a version of it, either the 16S or the 18S. And so it's deeply buried in all forms of life. It evolves very slowly. And one of Woz's great insights was to use this molecule, sequencing it as a register of the earliest history of, um, of growth, evolution, and divergence of life forms on Earth. He wanted to go back to the beginning, and this molecule took him back to the beginning. Anyway, after he had uh, announced his first great discovery, other scientists started saying, hey, that's a pretty good idea. They started using the same molecule, 16-SRNA, and uh, sequencing that in other organisms, and then everybody, uh, everybody started doing molecular phylogenetics, saying, hey, let's use molecular sequencing to discern um, what is related to what else and, and to help us identify various different forms of life and see where to place them on the tree of life. You know, I'm, I'm an ecologist by training, and um, there was there was a person, a character in your story that you spent some time on, that really took a different approach to classifying um, life than than Woes and the molecular phylogeneticists did, and and that's Whitaker. Um, if yes. you want to say something about him, and I bring him up because Doolittle, who did work, uh, or or at least was in some sense a colleague of, of Woes in the past, you know, he said that there really is no such thing as trees in nature. It's just how humans. The ideas of humans come up with to organize things for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, what 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 did Whitaker say, and sort of what's your perspective on how it contrasts or complemented Woe's ideas? Whitaker, yeah, Robert Whitaker uh, was a very interesting character to me too. He, like you, was an ecologist, and he was interested in the classification of 
organisms, different kinds of organisms, uh, in the question of how many major kingdoms there were. And he, uh, he came before Woes. He was publishing his major work in the, on this subject in the 1960s, some of it alone and some of it in collaboration with another fascinating uh, biologist, uh, Lynn Margulis. Uh, she was a microbiologist. But Whitaker, um, Whitaker's made the argument that we should not just use use structure, morphology, physical appearance, either from the naked eye or through uh, microscopes or electron micro microscopes. Uh, but we should also use ecology when we classify creatures, when we classify even the great kingdoms of life. So Whitaker uh, came up with a, I think it was first a, uh, a three kingdom, then a four kingdom tree of life. And there was overlap uh, rather than there being simply um, limbs leading to branches that diverge into other branches. He had these ovals that overlapped one another. Uh, and I call it, I call his version, and there were illustrations of it in his work, the prickly pear cactus of life. It looked more mm. like a prickly pear cactus than an oak tree. And what he eventually came to in collaboration with Lynn Margulis was a five kingdom a schema for life's diversity, a five-pad prickly pear of life. I hope we're, we're not losing listeners with these metaphors, but <laughs> a five-kingdom tree of life um, that, uh, I mean, I could, I could recite which five kingdoms, but he put, he put uh, bacteria in one kingdom, I believe plants in another, fungi in another, animals in another, and then protists. Um, single-celled complex creatures with complex eukaryotic cells in another. So his version was a five-kingdom tree of life, um, and then the arguments went on from there. Was the kingdom of life uh, divided into two major limbs or three major limbs or five major limbs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I brought him up because of the contrast of the sort of his functional perspective that, you know, classifying things as a function of what they do, plants with photosynthesis right. and fungi with absorption. And I, I, I do think that we want to come back to some of these sort of ideas, the relevance of ecology for, for Woes's platform later. But but you brought up Margulis. So, so David, if you want to tell us about Margulis and especially her, her contribution of endosymbiosis theory and, uh, you know, maybe how yeah. that complements where Woes was coming from. She was a wondrous scientist. And, and I did get to meet her, did get to spend a bit of time with her toward the end of her life. She was a charming, um, of wonderful, spunky, uh, genial, um, but very bold, strong, and risk-taking scientist, a microbiologist. Uh, mm -hmm. She worked from, not from genome data, but always from microscopy or electron microscopy. Uh, and she revived a theory that had been um, sketched out in the late, 20, late 19th, early 20th century, a theory of the origins of complex cells, the origin of the eukaryotic cell, the cell that our bodies are made of and plants uh, and fungi are made of, cells with cell nuclei containing the DNA and with, with internal organs, various kinds of internal organs, including in plants, 
chloroplasts, which are internal organs that do the, the photosynthesizing. They turn sunlight into, into energy. And in all creatures, mitochondria, which are these little energy packaging organs in our cells, very important for all the complex um, functions and processes that occur in eukaryotic cells. So Lynn Margulis revived this theory uh, that these two internal organs, the mitochondria and the chloroplast in plants, represent the vestiges of captured bacteria, bacteria that were swallowed by some sort of a host cell or internalized, maybe they infected the host cell, uh, several billion years ago, and instead of being digested or ejected, they came to stay, and those internal bacteria evolved into these internal organs. And um, so that all the mitochondria in our cells, according to this, are descended from captured bacteria. They have DNA, but it's not our DNA. It's, they have their own separate genomes. And in plants, likewise, with these chloroplasts. People thought Lynn was a little bit crazy <laughs> when she revived this theory. She published a journal paper in 67, and then she published a book in 1970. And, and, and other uh, microbiologists sort of looked askance. I mean, some people embraced this, but most thought, no, no, this is a crazy theory. Um, but she continued to fight for it. She was a, a very good debater, a, a, a very good arguer, uh, a very good teacher as well as um, a good writer uh, and, uh, and a fascinating and stubborn scientist. And then this idea that these internal organs were captured bacteria finally was confirmed by other scientists who decided to sequence the DNA in those internal organs to use Carl Woese's method on Lynn Margulis's idea. And they sequenced the the DNA in mitochondria and in chloroplasts, and they found, by God, these things are captured bacteria. They closely <laughs> resemble particular groups of bacteria that we can point to and that we have sequenced. So, mm -hmm. so she was vindicated by, uh, by the methodology that flowed out of Carl Woese's work. So you know, I'm I'm struck by the similarities in in the trajectories and personalities of of Carl Woese and Lynn Margulis, and you know they both had to fight very hard for a long time, and their ideas were largely ridiculed at the beginning before people started to take them seriously, and you know decided they were right in the end, and and maybe this is the story of all major discoveries in science, but um, you know does it take a certain kind of person? To, to make these transformative discoveries, do you think? Oh, it does, yes, I think. Well, in some cases it does. I mean, you're right that Lynn and Carl Woese, they were both um, very independent-minded. They were stubborn. They were brilliant. They were unconventional. They thought outside the box. Um, they were stubborn. Once when they made a discovery, they tended to stick with it and and argue this is this is it. This is the way. Despite rejection, despite skepticism from other scientists, they would hold on to an idea a long time if they believed it were correct, even though 
everyone else was saying, no, no, that's, that can't be right. Um, mm-hmm. So they were, they were alike in that regard. Um, but they didn't like each other. That's an interesting thing that I try and bring out in the book. Mm-hmm. They were not congenial to each other at all. I think Woes was probably more negative toward Lynn than Lynn was toward Woes. Um, and I described some of that. Why was Woes negative toward Lynn? Well, one of the reasons was that Lynn was saying that the tree of life has five major limbs, and Woes was saying, no, no, it has three. Um, and that mm-hmm. might seem like merely a polite disagreement to us, but to Woes, it was a fundamental rejection of what he considered his most important discovery. And mm-hmm. uh, by God, he was not going to take it lightly. So, so if we link back the the findings of of you know the endosymbiotic theory of Margulis to the the three domains that Woes talked about, um, maybe just explain briefly. Um, so, what actually came together to form eukaryotes? Like, what what were the bacterial and the archaeal roles in in that? <laughs> well, this is a lively area of research and discussion even today. Yes. What are the origins of the eukaryotic cell? And that involves a couple of questions, um, such as, you know, when did uh, did mitochondria enter this soon-to-be-complex cell? Did it enter uh, very early and allow the cell to be complex, or did it come in later once the cell had begun to be complex? But even more basic than that was the question, what was the host cell? What was the host mm-hmm. cell that swallowed um, just a single bacterium? This happened once in history, and that bacterium became all mitochondria and all complex cells descended from it. What was the host cell that, that, that swallowed it? Was it a bacterium? Maybe. Or was it an Archean, a member of this third kingdom of life that Woes had discovered? Evidence now points to that. And that's kind of a startling thing, because what that means is that the the main origin of our lineage of humans um, and all other animals goes back to an ancestor that was a form of creature that we didn't even know existed before 1977. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty astonishing. Yeah. Um, could you just talk very briefly about uh, Loki Archaeota? Um, I've, I've been reading some of this recent flurry of papers about, yes. um, you know, the archaeal lineage that may have given rise to eukaryotes. And yes. um, it's just fascinating. And a bunch of papers out in just the last couple of years. Right. The Loki Archaeota are a group of Archaeans, of this group, the Archaea. I can't remember. I think they might be considered a family. Anyway, they're, they're a, a, a major group, or, or they're a, a phylum. I, can't I think they're anyway, considered lo- a phylum, yeah. Phylum. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, a, a much bigger group, in other words, than, than a family. Um, so a major group within the, now they call it a domain instead of a kingdom, the three major domains. Archaea is one. So a major group, a phylum within the domain Archaea is the Loki Archaeota. And they have been discovered, among other places, um, around thermal vents, hydrothermal vents in deep trenches in the ocean, including one uh, off the coast of Iceland in the the far, far northern Atlantic, down very deep, about 10,000 feet, there is a vent. And near that, there 
is a, a group of peculiar structures, sort of towers of presumably made from um, the minerals uh, emitted by one of these hydrothermal vents. And that formation on the bottom of the ocean is called Loki's castle. Loki was a mysterious Norse god. And so it was decided to name these um, these formations on the bottom of the ocean, Loki's castle. Near Loki's castle, a submersible uh, submarine um, scooped up some some sediment from the bottom of the ocean. You could call it um, ocean bottom slime. Um, <laughs> that was that was brought up, and um, genomes were sequenced from that sediment. And this whole new group, new phylum of Archaeans were discovered, if I'm remembering the details correctly, um, and they were named the Loki Archaeota. There's a wonderful fellow, um, a youngish uh, Dutch uh, molecular biologist named Thies Edema, who works in Sweden now. He and his group have done the work, uh, some of the work on this, um, sequencing the Loki Archaeota, giving them a name, identifying them, showing roughly where they appear on the Archean limb of the tree of life and making the point that they seem to be more closely related to us than any other kind of Archean found so far. So maybe our ancestry, at least in terms of the host cell that be became the receptacle for for the complex um, structures uh, uh, of eukaryotic cells, maybe our deepest ancestor was related closely to the Loki Archaeota, these yeah. mysterious things from this mysterious uh, suboceanic uh, castle. And, and just one final question on this: What do you what do you think Woes would have thought of these discoveries? And I and I ask because, in a sense, these these new discoveries just in the last couple of years. Um, send us back to a sort of two domains of life rather than yes. three, because it right. says essentially that eukaryotes are nested within the archaea. And another way of saying that is we are archaea. Right, right. Absolutely right. Much to the point. Uh, and Woes was beginning to be resistant to that uh, even before he died in December of 2012. Uh -huh. Yes, to say that um, the the eukaryotes have have branched from very, very low down in the tree of life. Soon after the bacteria and the archaea branched off from the trunk, um, uh, scientists are now saying that eukaryotes then branched off from the archaea. And even Woes's trees of life show that. They show first two branches two limbs emerging from the trunk, and then almost immediately, one of those limbs diverges into two lesser limbs, one for the Archaeans mm -hmm. and one for the for the eukaryotes, even in Woes' <laughs> Trees of Life. But he sort of ignored that. It was a little bit, I think, of an inconsistency on his part to say, yes, this is a three-domain tree of life, and yet the deepest branching is just two branches and then mm -hmm. two limbs, and then one limb diverges into into two lesser limbs. Uh, so, so there is an inconsistency there, and, and people are still fighting about that. Is it two or is it three? Well, 
It depends on exactly which level of the tree of life going up in sort of um, horizontal slices across it. You want to you want to say, okay, here's the start. Here's where we call them right. domains. In that sense, you could say this is it's almost a, a silly argument. But God forbid mm-hmm. you use the word silly to these scientists. <laughs> or <laughs> piss everyone off. <laughs> Won't get you very far. <laughs> So, uh, David, we just, I guess our last episode was with Sarah Walker. I don't know if you know her, but she's sort of one of the folks working in the origins of life realm. And um, I'm curious to sort of know if you, I mean, I don't don't remember there being a mention of Luca in your book, the sort of, uh, you know, the original ancestor of, of all life on Earth. What what do you think Woes would think about that? Did you have conversations with people about the sort of, you know, universal first common ancestor? Luca, yeah. Last universal common ancestor. Um, what was it? Down there deep, essentially, um, the identity of the the base of the trunk of life. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very interested. I don't talk, talk about origins of life much, if at all, in this book, but I'm very interested in that. Um, and I'm starting to read my way into it now. Sarah Walker, I'll I will certainly take a look at her work. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, uh, Woes had ideas uh, about that. Uh, he even concocted his own word for Luca. Instead of calling it last universal common ancestor, he called it the progenote. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, essentially meaning this either a creature or a state of being down there at the base, the roots of the tree of life, the mound of um, confused, early, inchoate um, living creatures that um, from which the, the trunk, the single trunk of the tree of life grew. So he called it the progenote. He talked about it. He had ideas about it. He talked about something called the RNA world. He believed that RNA... Um, replicating itself might have been the earliest form of self-replicating entity that led then to things that we might call alive, that led mm-hmm. then to things that were recognizing, rec- recognizably cells. I mean, some people talk about, well, you know, the origin of life, what was the first cell? But they, they sort of forget that um, a, a biological cell, a living cell with a, of the wall or a membrane around it and internal protoplasm, an inside and an outside, that itself is a, is a reasonably complex, sophisticated thing. And to understand the origins of life, you need to think about what came before that. I'd say, you know, one of the really major ideas in, in your book that you spend uh, a lot of time on and describe very beautifully is horizontal gene transfer and, mm-hmm. you know, describing what that is and then how that changes our conception of uh, what the tree of life is and who we are. So could you just start maybe by saying what horizontal gene transfer is? Right. Horizontal gene transfer, the idea that genes can move sideways uh, across boundaries, across boundaries between individual cells, across boundaries between species, even across boundaries between one kingdom of life and another. 
this is supposed to be impossible. Genes, <laughs> genetic information is supposed to move vertically from ancestors to descendants, whether it's, uh, whether it's single-celled life like bacteria replicating themselves by fission and passing their, uh, their genetic information to the, to, the, uh, to the daughter cells, the two daughter cells that come from one cell dividing in half, or in complex creatures by sexual reproduction. Um, ancestors to offspring, that's the way DNA is supposed to be passed down. That's the way inheritance supposedly happens. But then scientists began discovering, well, that's not the only way. There are also these events when genetic material moves sideways from one creature into another. Um, and it became known as a horizontal gene transfer. When I first started reading about this in spring of 2013, I had never heard of it before. Uh, and I started saying, wait, what? What? Um, that's like supposed magic, to be, right? yeah, supposed to be impossible. And I thought I knew three or four good biological reasons why that was impossible. You know, the sequestration of the genome inside the nucleus of the cell in, in complex cells, et cetera, supposed to make that impossible. But we now know, and we know mainly from genomic information, from the sequencing of genomes and the comparison of genomes with very strong computing power, we now know that this has occurred in the past. It continues to occur. There are constraints against it. It doesn't happen easily, except in bacteria and maybe archaea. It does happen easily. But in complex cells, it doesn't happen easily. But it has happened plenty of times, and it has been very consequential. And I could talk about some of the, you know, some of the consequences of it. But the the, the earliest form of it was what, what Lynn Margulis was talking about was was uh, um, eukaryotic cells having captured bacteria and turned them into parts of themselves. Um, these uh, mitochondria and chloroplasts, and there is some transfer has been some transfer of their bacterial genes into um, the the nuclear genomes of complex cells, uh, they have downloaded some of their genes into the nucleus. So that's a form of horizontal gene transfer. But it also happens um, in other ways. And um, there, there's fancy names for a couple of different mechanisms. But the easiest way to think about this is to use the phrase that the great Joshua Letterberg um, coined, and that is infective heredity. This tends to <laughs> happen that. by infective processes, infection, rather than by uh, parenthood. Um, and, and that has been consequential for humans as well as for a lot of org other organisms. So, so would you say that if you survey the vast stretch of evolutionary time that's happened on the earth, is horizontal gene transfer something that you know, historically was more important and has been easier to do between and among bacteria and archaea. And, and is it something that's less relevant to us today as, you know, multicellular eukaryotes with fancier reproductive physiology? Is it becoming less, less of a, uh, an, an important process for us compared to microbes? Well, in a relative sense, the answer to that is yes, but then there come a lot of important qualifications to that yes. Among bacteria and probably archaea, horizontal gene transfer has been rampant. It's, it's 
It's going on all the time, and it has been going on for as long as there have been, probably as long as there have been bacterial and archaean cells, a lot of transfer um, from one to another of genes back and forth so that they're, um, the, uh, the genome of something like, for instance, the familiar bug E. coli um, is, a, is a mosaic of genes from a lot of other different kinds of bacteria that have come in, that have been transferred in by horizontal gene transfer. So yes, it's much more widespread and much less constrained among single-celled, uh, simpler cells, bacteria and archaeans. But it is still important and has been consequential among um, complex creatures, even with our isolated genomes inside um, cell nuclei. For instance, the human genome we now know is 8% viral. 8% of your genome, my genome, and Art's genome uh, is is viral DNA that has been inserted there by retroviruses that have infected uh, various individuals of the animal lineage over a long stretch of time, maybe 100 million years, and have gotten internalized. Uh, retroviruses insert their genomes into the cells they infect. HIV inserts its genome into immune cells, but these are retroviruses that inserted their genome into reproductive cells, into egg cells or sperm cells, testes mm -hmm. cells or ovary cells. And in doing that, those inserted stretches of viral DNA became hereditary in our line. So now 8% of our lineage, of our genome, as I say, is viral. And some of those stretches, some of those stretches seem to be inactive, non-functional, but some are functional and they're performing as genes, performing roles that are very, very essential to human physiology and reproduction. So, so you have this fascinating example of the book of uh, Syncytin, so uh, yeah. and its role in the formation of the of the placenta, which is uh, um, an incredibly important mammalian trait. Right. Uh, right. Want to just tell us about Syncytin? Yes. This was this was maybe the most surprising thing that I learned in the whole five years of my work on this book. Um, there is a kind. There's one of these um, bits of viral RNA was a gene that in the retrovirus formed um, a, a form of membrane, the envelope um, around the viral particle, uh, formed the uh, the envelope protein that surrounded the viral particle. So that viral gene now repurposed in humans forms another kind of membrane, the membrane between the placenta and the fetus. It's got a fancy name, syncytiotrophoblast is the name of this membrane. And um, the, the gene is called syncytin number two, syncytin number two, S-Y-N-C-Y-T-I-N. Syncytin. Ah, okay. Syncytin number two. And this work is done by a wonderful French um, uh, biologist named Thierry Heidemann and his group working in an institute on the south side of Paris. I went to Paris to talk to him about this. I, I read his work and I said, oh my God, this is so amazing. I need to talk to this guy. <laughs> I emailed him and said, if I come from Bozeman, Montana to Paris, Will you talk to me for an hour? And he said, sure. I went. He was very welcoming, very congenial. We talked for seven hours um, at his lab and driving across the city of Paris. And then I got, got up the next day and flew home. And it was very, very much worth wow. the trip. Um, <laughs> Dedication. That's so a quick he, interview. He is... Uh, he has elucidated this particular gene, Sensitin 2. There's another one, Sensitin 1, that is sort of parallel to it, that's been worked on by a different group of scientists. But Sensitin 2 is Thierry Heidemann's uh, 
focus, and that is the gene that creates, or, or at least one of the genes in, uh, essential in creating this crucial envelope between the placenta and the fetus. And without some form of this um, this membrane between the placenta and the fetus, you, you can't have internal pregnancy. You can't have placental mammals. So Heidemann speculates, he hasn't claimed that this is proven yet, but he speculates that this may have been one of the crucial events in the evolution of animals that allowed animals to, um, to have internal pregnancy instead of laying eggs. So um, can we can we I really want to sort of explore this, uh, you know, 8 percent of the viral, 8 uh, percent of the genome being um, viral origins and Margulis and others ideas about what that means for the process of evolution. Mm-hmm. But but before we get there, let's circle back to um, Barbara McClintock and especially the, the transposon she talked about. I think there was a Nobel Prize involved for that work, right, if I right. remember Right. Yeah, Barbara McClintock was a was a geneticist uh, working in, well, she, uh, in the 1940s and the 1950s. Um, she was at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island. Uh, she was raising corn, maize, M I. M-E-I-Z-E, as other people call it. We call it corn. Uh, And she was doing corn genetics and trying to understand the genetic processes of reproduction, mutation, uh, evolution, by looking at different colored kernels on ears of corn. Um, Genetic traits made visual that way. So she would raise her corn and and crossbreed her corn and then crossbreed it again and find these patterns. And she made discoveries. And one of the discoveries she made was that there were certain elements on the chromosomes of corn that would jump around, that would move from one spot on a chromosome to another spot, one, one chromosome to another. And um, and she was very interested in this and, and did a lot of experiments. And she eventually called these controlling elements and, and discerned that these uh, leaping genes, these, these things that bounced around, were very important in turning other genes on and off, controlling the way genes were expressed or not expressed during the course of development of the corn plant. Um, and eventually... Um, she she did a lot of other work too, but eventually in the 1980s, early 80s, I think, she was given a Nobel Prize. She worked in relative obscurity for most of her career. She was very independent-minded. She was much quieter. She was she was sort of quiet and and solitary, like Carl Woese, um, and um, brilliant and stubborn, like Lynn Margulis. Hmm. Uh, but she was her own person. Uh, and eventually, she, unlike either of them, she got the Nobel Prize in the early 80s for her work on these controlling elements. We now call those transposons because they transpose themselves from one point on a chromosome to other places. And those are very important now in understanding horizontal gene transfer because it turns out that they not only bounce around within the genome of an organism from one spot on a chromosome to another, from one chromosome to another chromosome, but they can also somehow, somehow, by some form of presumably infective heredity also, they can get into other creatures. 
And there's a fellow who I uh, interviewed for the book who works on this, Cedric Fischot, Frenchman working in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. who has done some fascinating work on this phenomenon, and he calls it horizontal transposon transfer, HTT, <laughs> instead of HGT. And mm-hmm. he has found through genome sequencing transposons that seem to have leapt around um, among very diverse creatures, such as you know a, a frog in in West Africa, uh, a lizard in North America, a bat in North America, uh, a bush baby kind of primate in East Africa, a, 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 a tenrec in Madagascar, and a kissing bug in South America, a parasitic blood sucking insect, and he has found the same transposon in all of those creatures, and yet it doesn't exist in the relatives of those creatures. It doesn't seem to have existed in the direct ancestors of those creatures. It seems to have gotten into them sideways. He calls it, by the way, he calls that a particular transposon space invaders. <laughs> yeah, I love that name. Oh, that's great. That's one of the best ever. <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to step out Let's just step back for a second and, and think about what this means, what horizontal, horizontal gene transfer means for this idea of, of a tree as established by molecular phylogenetics. And, you know, so the, the sort of typical way that biologists make trees now is you sequence genes or big chunks of the genome and you use statistical techniques to reconstruct what that diverging set of branches looks like. What, what's the appropriate topology Mm-hmm. And it seems like horizontal gene transfer uh, causes a big problem for that that process. And so, would you say that that horizontal gene transfer, in a sense, uh, invalidates this idea of of trees, or you know, does it make this idea of the tree of life something uh, tenuous or messy enough that that we should? abandon it. And right. you know, the, the way you approach this in the book is to talk about branches coming together and in, inosculation. Um, right. Or, or convergence in addition to divergence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a very lively um, um, argument also, as I describe in the book. And this, this argument dates back about 20 years now. And one of the major players in that, we, you've mentioned him, is a, a fascinating scientist named Ford Doolittle, who has written review articles and done research on this. And he's a bit of an artist himself. So he has drawn trees of life um, that show horizontal gene transfer as well as the major uh, themes of divergence. Um, I would say, does it invalidate um, the tree? Um, no, it tangles the tree, which is my, why my book has the title it has, The Tangled <laughs> Tree. Mm-hmm. There is still a very strong tree-like signal in the history of life. Um, but as a categorical truth, the history of life is shaped like a tree. No, you can't say that as categorically true anymore because there are, there are limbs and branches on this tree that do things that real limbs and branches don't do. They inosculate. They come together. They converge. Horizontal gene transfer represents one limb flowing into another limb. And you don't see that on an oak tree or a poplar. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. the tree of life is tangled. There is a signal of um, tree-like divergence, but there is also 
convergence. And another way of saying this, you mentioned that people now sequence genes and they, they find that the trees of life don't agree with one another. If you, if you sequence 16S RNA in a, in a bunch of uh, creatures, 16S and 18S, then you get one tree of life. If you sequence the gene sensitin 2, uh, as you find it in a bunch of creatures, you get another tree of life. If you sequence some other gene, you get another tree of life. One, one scientist said, well, the point is that each gene has its own tree representing its own pathway through history mm-hmm. in one organism and another passage along lineages, even when those lineages converge. So each tree has its own history. You lay all those trees on top of one another and you get you get a you, you get something that looks like a tree, but the limbs and the branches are tangled, very yeah. confusingly, intricately, uh, majestically tangled. Um, I wonder... I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time talking about what seems to have motivated some folks, either as, after they made these, these discoveries or maybe was an inspiration earlier. And I'm thinking, you know, in particular of a quote that you quoted from the book by Lynn Margulis and, and her son, Dorian Sagan, um, about the role or sort of this this perplexing thing that's always been around in evolutionary biology about where genetic variation comes from. Yes, so yes. What what's your feeling and especially having talked to, you know, folks working on transposons and humans and such, what's your feeling about genetic variation from HGT or HGT really being a a big portion of, of how evolutionary biology works? And before you answer that, let me just frame it since, you know, for sake of time, try to be efficient here. Um, genetic determinism is really something that, I don't know, to say that it's being challenged is a massive understatement. We've probably done two or three episodes just on some version of that concept. And and by genetic determinism, for our, our listeners that haven't caught those episodes, um, there's a there's a sentence in your book about um, ribosomes on, I think it's page 53 if we want to be super specific. They take in genetic information and raw material in the form of amino acids, and they produce proteins. And in plainer words, ribosomes turn genes into living bodies. So that's a... I'm sure you didn't mean, you know, that you had to go from protein to elephant instantaneously, but but the sort of deference to genes is really becoming untenable to folks. So how how are you going to how could you mesh this sort of HGT as a source of genetic variation with the realities of, you know, these other complex buzzwords like epistasis and phenotypic plasticity and things that uh, that we have spent some time on and, in past episodes. And, and epigenetics, I'm sure, yeah. And epigenetics, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Laundry well, list grows. I, 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 hear, I hear sort of two questions there, are One is about genetic determinism, and uh, I'm sure you've had lively discussions about that and about epigenetics and things. And, and to, say that, um, to say that ribosomes turn information into physical structures is not, I hope, to imply that genes determine everything about the way a body is built and a life is lived. They certainly don't. There are certainly other influences on on the way genes are expressed during development and during adult life, um, which genes are expressed and which aren't. A lot of, um, you know, for lack of a better word, environmental factors as mm-hmm. well as genetic factors. So I certainly, uh, I'm, I'm not a genetic determinist, and I don't think my book, I certainly hope it uh, doesn't uh, 
uh, imply the uh, mm-hmm. determinism. Um, the other thing that I hear you asking about is the sources of innovation upon which natural selection works. And there's a very important scientist whose name I don't think we have mentioned yet, a guy named Charles Darwin. Uh, and people... People ask me, all right, all this revolution in understanding of the late 20th, early 20th century, the tangled tree and horizontal gene transfer and and all this, does this, are you, are you saying that this refutes um, Darwin or refutes 20th century neo-Darwinian orthodoxy? And the answer to that is important because I've, I've been misrepresented a little bit on this um, in some places. The answer is no, it doesn't refute it. It modifies it in very important ways, sort of the same way that Einstein's um, ideas modified Isaac Newton's ideas. They did not refute them. Um, and that was a very salubrious development. Likewise, these adding to what we understand of Darwinian evolution. And and the first thing that uh, is important to say is that natural selection, at least during the last 2 billion years or, or longer, 3.5 maybe, the period of cellular life, natural selection has been operating. And, and these discoveries don't challenge that, don't need to challenge that, don't want to challenge that. Natural selection operates. What does it operate on? It operates on genetic variation within populations uh, under the selective pressures of, of survival and reproduction in given environments. It acts on innovation, variation. Where does that variation in the genomes of individuals within populations come from? Well, that um, the classic Darwinian and neo-Darwinian view of that is that variation comes from mutation and recombination. Uh, it comes from small and smallish uh, mistakes made as genomes, as DNA copies itself, and with sexual creatures, the rearrangement of, of genetic information um, during the, the process of meiosis, recombination, shifting, mm-hmm. crossing over chromosomes and shifting genes here and there to create new combinations um, for individuals born to those creatures. Great source of variation. Uh, And then natural selection acts on it. What these discoveries add is a very significant, sizable new source of genetic variation, of innovation, horizontal gene transfer, the understanding that genes can come sideways into an individual. And then when that individual um, reproduces and and uh, produces offspring that are part of a population. Those offspring may contain these sizable quanta of of new genes, new genetic material. These sizable quanta of variation, innovation upon which natural selection then acts. For instance. Sensitin 2 or its predecessors in the line of animals. If Thierry mm-hmm. Heidemann is right about that, um, and these viral envelope genes came into the animal lineage and were ad- uh, modified, changed, adapted, and evolved into genes that help to create the membrane between placenta and fetus, then that is an extraordinarily different scenario than what we have gotten from um, Darwin and neo-Darwinism, not because it mm-hmm. doesn't involve natural selection, but it be- because it involves a very sizable, dramatic, sudden source of variation. Yeah. So can I, while we're on this topic, because it, it, it sort of, 
uh, it resonates with with what what we're talking about. I I couldn't figure out what Woz's hang up with Darwin yeah. was. I mean, clearly he he had major issues. The last parts of your book it talks a lot about that. But but what was his concern? What was the gripe? Well, I don't know. Um, I mean, I have theory. People have theories. Dar uh, um, Woz. We should let the listeners know. Woz hated Darwin yeah, yeah. at the end of his life. He didn't hate him all through his life. At the end of his life, he got very bitter, very negative toward Charles Darwin. Um, he thought he was he, he himself was a more important biologist than Charles Darwin. That was part of it. Part of it was was great scientist envy. Um, he uh, <laughs> he talked about the cult of personality that had elevated Darwin in two thousand nine when Darwin's two hundredth birthday was being celebrated. Woz sent an email to some friends saying, "On on when was it? February twelfth, uh, eighteen oh nine. Darwin was born. February twelfth, two thousand nine. Woz sends an an email to some of his friends saying this should be a day of rage, meaning <laughs> rage at the overestimation of Charles Darwin. He had hmm. also learned at least a bit." about the story of um, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, the younger man mm. who co-discovered the theory of natural selection, but didn't get nearly as much credit for it as Darwin did. I've written large sections of whole books about that and have, have, have researched that story. Um, does it show Darwin as being a ruthless um, competitor and even a plagiarist, as some people claim, stealing Wallace's idea? No, I don't believe it shows that at all. Uh, it shows a very complicated interaction um, of two men hitting on the same idea at one point and then one of them um, writing a great book about it and the other one sort of standing by and um, and holding the first man's jacket and being very supportive and being very happy, Wallace, to let mm -hmm. Darwin get most of the credit. Woes didn't see it that way. Uh, Woes had read some about Wallace. He embraced this idea that Darwin was an intellectual thief. Uh, so that combined with his own envy of Darwin and who knows what else made him um, very negative toward Darwin at the end of his life. Wow. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> I, I wanted to ask uh, another question about about woes, and this this circles back to this um, idea that that Marty brought up just a few minutes ago. Uh, he, he and I, Mar Marty and I, have been quite interested in this idea of where phenotypic traits come from, and and where variation in phenotypes come from, and we've thought fairly extensively about the roles that the environment play in in interacting with genomes, and so this kind of gets away from genetic determinism into ideas that, you know, traits are a, a sort of mutual outcome, but, uh, uh, a dance between what's happening in the genome and the gene expression and the environments that organisms are, are experiencing. And there's something about your book that really caught my eye, and that was um, you mentioned that Woes collaborated with Nigel Goldenfeld, uh, I guess, late in his career, mm -hmm. and that Goldenfeld was interested in complex systems, in, in modeling those complex systems. And, and um, Marty and I just wondered, what, what became of that? It seemed like a, a direction that was surprising for Woes to go, and we wondered if, if 
if any major ideas came out of that collaboration? Well, yes. And as a matter of fact, I just saw Nigel Goldenfeld last week. I was invited huh. back to Urbana, Illinois, to the Carl Woese Institute for Genomic Biology to give a lecture on this book. And Nigel was one of my hosts. So I, I did a roundtable discussion with Nigel. I got to hear what he's thinking about now. He is a very interesting fellow. I recommend him <laughs> as maybe somebody to be on your show. Uh, he's working on a couple of different things that arose from that. Um, he works in um, uh, complex, I guess you might call it complexity theory, the you know, complex uh, interactive dynamic systems and how that relates to evolutionary biology. He and Woes uh, collaborated near the end of Woes's life. Uh, Nigel is now doing some thinking and work with a fellow named Elbert Branscombe, who is also there at Urbana, uh, who I met for the first time and whose work I've started to read, who works on the origins of life. So they're thinking about that. Uh, and they have some very interesting ideas, which I should let them um, describe rather than myself, about the origins of life. One of them is what they call the alkali vent hypothesis for the origins of life. Uh, so that's where Nigel is now. And um, he's a wicked smart fellow doing very interesting work. So, so Art, do you think maybe we should spend the last few minutes talking about method? Is that Yeah, sensible? I think that's a great idea. So, uh, yeah, how, how, how did you choose this topic, David? I mean, what, what was the reason for the book? Um, I'm, I'm particularly intrigued if it had anything to do with uh, Woes' feelings about Darwin. Did you, did you catch that early and it sort of motivated a lot more research? Or was it Actually, you know, no. solely um, Woes' yeah, discovery I'll of the archaea? Although I've written about Darwin uh, a lot and and you know, care deeply about Darwin, that was not what began me on this. And I'll, I'll add, um, first of all, that I love talking about method because um, uh, I think of myself as a writer first and a science explainer, science writer second. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm very interested in um, how... Uh, information is gathered. I'm interested in the epistemology of books, how we know what we know, how we know what Carl Woese was thinking, uh, how we know what Carl Woese said, sourcing uh, for nonfiction that is very, very conscientiously factual and yet is ultimately turned into what I hope are artistic, satisfying, pleasing shapes. Um, you know, I come out of a literary tradition and not a scientific tradition. I did my graduate mm -hmm. work on structure of the novels of William Faulkner. So I love <laughs> thinking about how to structure a book. Um, this one began for me when I started reading first about horizontal gene transfer. And it caught me by surprise and fascinated me. And then I read a little farther and I got to Ford Doolittle and his review articles, his overviews of horizontal gene transfer and evolution. And then soon after that, I came across this character, Carl Woese. And, uh, and I, I wanted to write a book about horizontal gene transfer and um, the, the redrawing of the tree of life. It's very complicated information, very technical very abstruse. You you, you got to make things narrative and appealing to people if you want to reach um, not just the science nerds out there, but ordinary readers, which is what I always want to do. Um, and uh, one of my mantras is um, people like to read about people. Even mm -hmm. if you're talking about science, you can't just explain ideas. You need characters, you need narrative, you need scenes, you need stories. And so I started looking for the people and the stories that would tell the tale of 
molecular phylogenetics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found Carl Woese. I went back to Lynn Margulis, who I already knew about, and I saw how she fit in. I went back to Barbara McClintock, saw how she fit in, uh, saw how started to learn how Ford Doolittle fit in, Robert Whitaker, um, Darwin's part of this, uh, other wonderful characters like Oswald Avery, who confirmed mm -hmm. that DNA is the genetic substance, Fred Griffith, who discovered horizontal gene transfer back in the 1920s but didn't know what he was seeing, um, Ernst Haeckel, great popularizer of Darwin's work in the 19th century, a German who was partly important because he was a beautiful artist. And when he drew a tree of life, it really looked like a tree. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's how I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to tell it by way of, of these characters, these fascinating people who advanced this single continuous thread of discovery and understanding of life's history. Um, hmm. And, so how do you how do you pick the topics in the first place? It's hard enough for us to sort of you know decide topics for just short podcasts, and it only takes a <laughs> few hours of preparation. You're going to devote five years. When do you what do you what leads you to just pull the trigger? Uh, well, I'll tell you a, a secret about this one. Just just between uh, the three of us and all of your listeners, um, yeah. <laughs> I. Uh, I was starting with a new publisher back in 2013, Simon & Schuster, wonderful editor named Bob Bender, and he wanted to publish me, and they wanted to publish me, and they said, you tell us what book you want to write. I was looking at um, three different ideas. I did essentially back-of-the-envelope proposals on each of those three, and my, my wonderful agent uh, gave them to Bob Bender and Simon and & Schuster and said, here, you tell us what you, which one of these you're interested in. And they said, oh, we want the one about the tree of life. And I practically <laughs> grabbed my head and said, oh, no. They had to pick that one. That's the, that's the hardest one. How in the world am I going to write that book? That's, that's fascinating, yes. But they have no idea how complicated this challenge is going to be to turn that into a page turner for regular readers. Um, mm, but yeah. and and I had some I had some uneasy moments. I had some four AM moments in the first year or so of work on this thinking, oh God, this is impossible. But now <laughs> I'm extremely glad I stayed with it. Um, I hope readers f are satisfied with this book. I'm certainly um, happy with the way it came out um, because it's a, it's a story of amazing people and some of the most uh, astonishing discoveries in biology in the last hundred years. I, I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, one difference between this book and some of your previous ones is that, that this one is focused much more on uh, laboratory work yes. and, you know, lab nerds doing their thing right. rather than exciting things happening out in the field. And and I know you did do a little field work for this this project. I know John McCutcheon and I know you spent some time out in uh, Chile with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but how does how does writing about lab work change your approach to the book? Well, that made it harder. Um, you're right that this is different from my earlier big uh, long-form works on science. Um, in those, writing about evolutionary biology, um, island biogeography, zoonotic diseases in books like The Song of the Dodo and Spillover and others, I had the opportunity of following 
interesting scientists through jungles, through the Congo, um, through um, the, uh, the Amazon, uh, climbing on rooftops in Bangladesh in the middle of the night to catch bats that we hoped were carrying lethal viruses, crawling into caves <laughs> in southern China. Um, uh, looking what for could com- possibly go wrong, right? Yeah, what could what could possibly go wrong? So, so I had the advantage of these outdoor adventure narratives with with these these uh, um, intrepid scientists, um, and with this story, I didn't have that advantage. There was no there was no outdoor adventure. The only jungles that I was following scientists through uh, were jungles of data. Um, it made mm-hmm. it it made it trickier. It made it all the more important to focus on uh, human character and uh, and you're always writing about mysteries. You know, science is about solving mysteries. Um, and if you have gorillas and uh, and lethal viruses and leopards and komodo dragons in the picture, that helps with the drama. But um, <laughs> solving mysteries of the genome can be. Uh, can be pretty exciting too. I mean, learning about mm-hmm. Sensitin too from Thierry Heidemann in Paris was as exciting as any trip I've made. And you know, here was my hardship duty. I had to fly to Paris and stay in a hotel and yeah, ride I'm across so <laughs> ride across the city with him on the way to his institute, um, driving. 45 minutes to the city of Paris, as I say in the book, this man has probably the world's most elegant commute. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then to sit in his lab and talk for six or seven hours. Yeah, that's um, great. I, I also wanted to ask about, um, you know, so we, we talked to Carl Zimmer in, in January, and I was really uh, amazed at his breadth of, of science knowledge. And I you know, I feel the same way about about you and your book and your books. And I just wonder, have you ever thought about being a biologist rather than being a writer? I have. I was always interested in the natural world and always interested in writing since I was a kid, since I was about 11 years old. I had those hmm. two interests. And then I had some great English teachers at a Jesuit high school and at Yale, where I was an undergraduate. Um, and that steered me toward the literary side. I started my career as a novelist. I published four books of fiction before I published a, a book of nonfiction. Uh, but I gradually gravitated toward nonfiction and in particular toward uh, the biological sciences as what became essentially a journalistic beat. You know, Carl Zimmer and I have um, probably a few things in common, but one thing we have in common is that we were both Yale English majors before we became Hmm. science Hmm. writers. And uh, that was, uh, it was a pretty good grounding. I mean, you know. So so you've never thought about just chucking it all and going to the lab and getting to work on one of these things? No, I didn't. I mean, I did, I did a little dabbling in non-degree work in, um, in zoology after I had finished my graduate work on William Faulkner. Um, huh. But to become a scientist, no, I never really wanted to be a scientist. Um, I have, the, in a way, the best of both worlds. I get, to, I get to travel from one scientist to another, from one lab to another, from one field site to another. I get to go to Chile with John McCutcheon and help him collect cicadas and talk to him about genomes within genomes within genomes and visit these other scientists. And so um, I get, uh, I don't produce any um, original scientific work. Some people say, well, you're a scientist. Sometimes they say, you're a scientist, so yeah, yeah. And I quickly correct them, no, 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 I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy who yeah. follows science. <laughs> right, uh, cool. But it's a, great, uh, it's a great ticket. It's a great niche. Yeah. It's a great privilege. Yep. 
All right, David, I have just one more question for you, um, and then maybe we can wrap it up. Uh, you spent five years on this beast, and uh, it's really an amazing read, but I know the sacrifices I have to make in even short papers. What's the the coolest story that you were forced to leave out? Oh, that's easy. Um, <laughs> ten, days, t- 10 days in Chile with John McCutcheon catching cicadas. His fascinating work about... Um, intracellular bacteria that have intracellular bacteria symbionts of themselves, genomes within genomes within genomes, um, horizontal gene transfer moving from one to another inside cicadas, all of this stuff. I loved it, but it was so complicated that, and and John already knows this, I, I, I apologize to him. We had a great time in Chile, and I don't mention it in the book. It just was too complicated, too far in the weeds for me to add one more thing for readers to absorb. And so I thank John um, uh, effusively, I hope, in my acknowledgments, but um, I had to leave that out. Well, it turns out we're going to have him as a guest on Big Biology in February Good. <laughs> uh, at a live event in Missoula at the Insectarium. So Great. Uh, listeners, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, John McCutcheon. Yeah, listeners, his work is fascinating. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much, David, for talking yeah, to us. This has you. been a really great conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you, and I appreciate yeah, your, your, your interest in the book. As scientists, we're often laser-focused on our own research. Between conducting research, writing grants, and teaching classes, it can be hard to find time to explain what our research means to the rest of the world. Communicating science requires a whole different skill set, and it's not easy to do. That's why we love talking to science writers. They specialize in telling those stories. David is genuinely a master in that domain. Just leave through a few pages of any of his books to get a feel for the depth and breadth of his bio-knowledge. Science journalists like David don't have a monopoly on science communication, though. Scientists do it, too. You're listening to a couple of active researchers who have also become podcasters. We know that a lot of you listening are scientists as well as science communicators. And we'd love to hear about your experiences. How do you communicate your science? Who is your audience? You can reach out to us through Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or just send us a message through our website, bigbiology.org. If you like this chat with Kwaman, you might enjoy another episode we made with the science writer Carl Zimmer. That's episode four if you haven't listened to it yet. We talk with Carl about his book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, and also about the intersection of politics and science. Thanks to Matt Bloys for writing and producing the episode. Thanks also to Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey, who handle our social media channels. And thanks to Steve Lane, who manages our website. We also want to thank the University of South Florida College of Public Health for support.